October 7th, 2001, Kandahar Province, Afghanistan. The sky is lit ablaze by missile strikes. F-14 and F-18 fighter aircraft are launched from U.S. carriers based in the Arabian Sea. They attack dozens of training camps and militant staging areas throughout the region. B-52 Stratofortress bombers fly at a high altitude, hitting even more targets with vast amounts of bombs. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Less than one month after two aircraft hit the World Trade Center and a third the Pentagon, the United States of America has commenced Operation Enduring Freedom. This operation begins what will become one of the longest sustained conflicts ever faced in U.S. history. At the Pentagon, today's strikes were described as the initial phase of a sustained operation using all the instruments of U.S. power. Since then, almost 2,400 servicemen and women have lost their lives in the war in Afghanistan. It's a conflict that will define United States foreign policy and politics for years to come. But why? Why did the United States of America invade a country that has come to be known as the graveyard of empires? To answer this question, we need to go back 50 years earlier to a time when it was the United States that supported the very same men who would later go on to create the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. My name is Henry Larson. You're listening to Enduring Freedom. One can make the argument that Afghanistan hasn't been at peace in a long time. Ever since its conception as an Islamic monarchy, the nation has been under siege in some form or another. Perhaps it's because of the country's geography. Afghanistan is bordered by Pakistan to the east and Iran to the west. In the mid-19th century, the United Kingdom invaded Afghanistan, setting off a series of three wars for independence. It wasn't until 1919 that the country was declared a sovereign nation again. However, even after British occupation, Afghanistan still remained a monarchy. Its similarities to the English monarch are striking, but a little too in-depth to get into in this podcast. From 1919 to 1928, Afghanistan was ruled by King Amanullah Khan and then Mohammad Adir Shah from 1928 to 1933 until he was assassinated. The ruler that set off the proverbial powder keg of events, however, was Mohammad Zahir Shah, the last king of Afghanistan. Kabul. Their Majesties King Mohammad Zahir and Queen Homaira prepare to leave for their visit to the United States of America. Zahir's Prime Minister from 1953 onwards was Mohammad Daoud Khan, his cousin. Daoud Khan pressed for close relationships with the Soviet Union during his time in office until 1973 when the king took a trip overseas. Daoud Khan took advantage of the king's absence to stage a bloodless coup 
overthrowing the monarchy and declaring himself the first president of Afghanistan. But this year, events have caught up with and overtaken feudal Afghanistan. Traditionally a buffer state, standing alone between major powers, it has suddenly caught world attention. New men have seized control, men who appear willing to reactivate ancient grievances and to assist the ambitions of powerful friends. Previously, Afghanistan had good relations with both the United States and USSR, even throughout the depths of the Cold War. But along with instilling several modernistic and liberal policies, one of Daoud Khan's policy changes was opening the country to more Soviet influence. This angered many conservative tribal leaders, who started to take up arms against the new government. But then, in 1973, things took a sharper turn for the worst for the Afghan Republican government. And while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan, where the pro-Soviet regime has been replaced by a government even more friendly to Moscow. The takeover was accomplished after the open intervention of Soviet troops, the first time the Russians have moved militarily against another country since their tanks rolled into Prague in 1968. The Soviets had invaded, splitting the nation in two. On one side stood the pro-Soviet Republic, and the other stood the Mujahideen, various militia groups dedicated to combating the Russian forces and legitimate Afghan government. Among this group of rebels were two very important figures, Mohammed Omar and Osama bin Laden. Afghanistan's neighbor, Pakistan, had increasingly difficult relations with the Afghan government since 1920 and backed the Mujahideen forces against Soviet occupation. Likewise, the United States employed its policy of containment and supported the rebel groups as well. Even though the 1980s were seen as a period of detente or cooling of tensions between both superpowers, the U.S. didn't want the Soviets gaining a strategic position in the Middle East. Today we recognize a nation of unsung heroes whose courageous struggle is one of the epics of our time. The Afghan people have matched their heroism against the most terrifying weapons of modern warfare in the Soviet arsenal. Despite blanket bombing and chemical and biological weapons, the brave Afghan freedom fighters have prevented the nearly 100,000 strong Soviet occupation force from extending its control over a large portion of the countryside. Those everyday heroes that then-President Ronald Reagan spoke of, the Mujahideen, waged a guerrilla war against the Soviet occupation and Republic forces. With help from both Pakistan and the United States, rebel forces were successful in dealing a terrible toll to the Soviet troops in the region. One of the many leaders of these militant groups was a man named Mohammed Omar. Omar lived in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan until the 1978 coup, when he moved to Pakistan with his family. In Pakistan, Omar studied at a prestigious school for conservative Sunni Muslims. When the Soviets invaded his home country, Omar joined a Mujahideen militia, where it's believed he fought skillfully against Russian troops. He was experienced as well. Omar was said to have been injured in combat four separate times. Leading his forces to Karachi, Omar led prayers at a mosque while continuing to muster his forces. It was at this mosque that he would meet Osama bin Laden for the first time. For the Soviets, the war was not going well. A 
grand total of 15,000 Russian soldiers had been killed, and by 1989, the Kremlin decided to evacuate its forces from the region. The defeated garrison left behind armored personnel carriers and fuel to use them, in addition to ammunition that the rebels at once put to use. Attacks on this and other strong points are being stepped up as the rebels pour in from Pakistan. They're harassing the departing Soviets and closing off the main lines of communication to the Afghan capital. Throughout the Soviet withdrawal, the U.S. continued to support the militia forces. The U.S. ambassador to Pakistan says the rebels should not be criticized for refusing to give the Soviets safe passage out of the country. Afghan people have been waiting uh, 10 years for, for freedom. I don't think uh, we or anyone else in a position to tell them, uh, well, it's going a little bit too fast. Uh, you shouldn't be getting your freedom back as quickly as you are. However, in hindsight, the fallout of Afghan liberation proved to be catastrophic. By April of 1992, Afghan citizens had expected an interim government to form while democratic elections were held. But democratic elections weren't going to happen. On April 25th, three of the largest Mujahideen groups turned on one another plunging the nation into another four years of infighting and civil war. For a nation sick of conflict, the promise of an entirely new civil war seemed hopeless. Many of the larger rebel fighters had become warlords in their own right, hell-bent on securing territory that they had fought so hard to control. It was this obviously awkward power dynamic that frustrated efforts to reform Afghanistan's democracy and that plunged the country into even more infighting. What you're hearing right now is the sound of combat outside Kabul in late 1992. Rockets, small arm fire, and explosive detonations can be clearly made out. 25,000 people died from 1992 to 1996. 25,000 in Kabul alone. Some days we push through a thousand trucks of food to Kabul, usually without any problems. And now, of course, we're doing it without the help of the Soviets. We'll never allow Kabul to starve. The people of Afghanistan were suffering, the nation's politics in shambles. Many citizens felt disenfranchised. In particular, many Mujahideen soldiers objected to their commander's bickering. Many of those fighters were Orthodox Sunni Muslims from all over the surrounding region, who were educated in Pakistani Sunni conservatories. The comparison between these restless militants and Muhammad Omar is similar for all the wrong reasons. With support from Pakistani intelligence, Omar and these religious militant members formed a fanatical organization and called themselves the Students in Pashtu, better known as the Taliban. Very quickly, the Taliban began to seize control of large swaths of Afghanistan. ...do not appear to be on the basis of any significant fighting. Uh, what appears to be happening is that the Taliban are advancing uh, first into Jalalabad, then into Sarobi, and then beyond, on the basis, essentially, of what appear to be either defections or desertion. 
At first, the Taliban was greeted with support. To a war-torn country, at least some semblance of order was welcome. The Taliban imposed local ordinances, fixed means of communication, and reopened places of business. However, whatever upsides the Taliban brought to captured territory, they were far outweighed by the negatives. The Taliban imposed an incredibly strict form of Sharia law. Women were forced to stay at home unless they were with a male family member. Schools were shut down and people lived in fear of retribution. There were food shortages, power losses. Afghan citizens started to starve. On a nationwide scale, the Taliban made huge strides in progress. With military and monetary support from Pakistan, they took the regional capital of Kandahar City in 1994, quickly followed by Jalalabad and Kabul in 1996. did serious incursions inside the Afghan territory, and they have enabled the Taliban to move towards the capital. In less than a year, the combined forces of Pakistani militia and the Taliban fighters had seized the capital. Swiftly following, Omar announced the creation of the Islamic State of Afghanistan, ruled entirely by the Taliban regime. Resistance was swift to follow. Reports of terrible human rights abuses drew global condemnation and two Soviet-Afghan war generals by the names of Abdul Rashid Dotsun and Ahmad Shah Massoud formed the so-called Afghan Northern Alliance, which held on to the last bits of unconquered territory in Afghanistan. The Taliban relentlessly attacked the Northern force through the rest of the late 90s. By 1998, Al-Qaeda, an even more radical jihadist group, had gained significant influence in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden and Mohammed Omar met on several occasions. Al-Qaeda assisted the Taliban in numerous campaigns against the Northern Force. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda on occasion worked together, with Al-Qaeda striking against Western targets and civilians abroad. The Taliban continued to enforce regime of terror throughout the nation. Food, resources, and supplies gradually disappeared as the Taliban kicked out foreign NGOs and charities, which the Afghan people had relied on for support. Then, on September 11, 2001, the eyes of the world turned to Kabul. Al-Qaeda hijacked four U.S. airliners and killed almost 3,000 people in the most terrible attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. The hammer would fall on the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the little war-torn nation of Afghanistan once more. More than two weeks ago, I gave Taliban leaders a series of clear and specific demands. Close terrorist training camps, hand over leaders of the Al-Qaeda network, and return all foreign nationals, including American citizens, unjustly detained in your country. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. Initially, the terrorists may burrow deeper into caves and other entrenched hiding places. 
Our military action is also designed to clear the way for sustained, comprehensive, and relentless operations to drive them out and bring them to justice. Operation Enduring Freedom would continue until 2014, when U.S. military commanders faced it out for Operation Freedom Sentinel. The Taliban would be routed from Kabul in late 2001, and their last stronghold of Kandahar City by 2002. Afghanistan would choose their first democratically elected president in 2014. But the fight still continues. Almost 8,500 troops are still stationed in Afghanistan. Terror attacks continue every week, and as of 2016, more than 31,000 Afghan civilians had lost their lives in the conflict. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, while their force strength has been limited incredibly, still are present and threatening on a region-wide scale. Kabul, Kandahar, and Jalalabad have been reduced to fractions of their former selves. The toll Afghanistan has taken is enormous. The country that promised to be the death of empires has become a graveyard in its own right. Enduring Freedom was produced and written by Henry Larson. Audio, reporting, and sourcing comes from the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the Associated Press, CBS, ABC, and Echo News, the Afghan Embassy in Washington, D.C., National Public Radio, Vanderbilt University, the BBC World Service, Wikimedia Commons, the George W. Bush Presidential Library, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, the National Archives, and the Human Rights Watch. This audio piece is a non-commercial, educational, non-profit production. All audio fits in accordance with the fair use portion of U.S. copyright law. Thank you for listening.